So this morning, we're finding ourselves as a church kind of between series. We finished the book of Habakkuk last week. Uh, We did a three-part series in that short Old Testament prophetic book. And so that ended last week. And next Sunday, as most of you are aware, is Palm Sunday. And so we're going to have Palm Sunday and then Easter. And then we'll be getting into 1 Samuel coming out of Easter. So today I kind of had a freebie. Like, what do I want to preach on? We're, We're in between some things. And I thought that it would be helpful for us as a church to discuss a little bit of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a fancy word that just refers to our doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology is about the study of the church. And particularly this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to reflect together on the office of an elder or a pastor. Now, this is very relevant in our church life because at the end of this month, the end of April, we as a congregation are actually voting on receiving a new elder among us. We've put forward Joe Rupp now as an elder candidate in our church. So we're going to be voting on that at the end of this month. So it is good for us as a church body to be reminded of what this office is and to reflect on this job, so to speak. As we get to 1 Peter chapter 5, we see here in this text that Peter is writing to the elders of churches. He says this, So I exhort the elders among you. Now what churches do these elders find themselves in? Well, if you back up to the beginning of this book, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, we see who this letter is written to. It says this, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, since all of you know exactly where those cities are, I need say no more. No, I'm kidding. Essentially, that's modern-day Turkey. These are different cities in what used to be known as Asia Minor. Today, it is modern Turkey. And so there's these different churches, there's these different Christian communities there, in these various cities, and Peter here is, as an apostle of Jesus, is writing a letter to them to encourage them, and at this point in this letter, he shifts the focus to a specific group of people in these churches, and those people are elders. And he writes to the elders to exhort them, he says, which is a word that just means to urge them to do something. But before we read what he's urging them to do, he adds a couple of additional remarks. Notice Peter is writing to elders as an elder. He says, as a fellow elder. So Peter understands himself to also be an elder, and he's writing to fellow elders. So what is an elder? Let's stop and pause and think about that together this morning. The Greek word is presbyteros. That's a fun one, huh? Let's say that, presbyteros. Oh my gosh, you guys are really good at that. That's almost certainly not the way they pronounced it in Koine Greek 2,000 years ago, but that's how English-speaking seminary professors pronounce it, presbyteros. And the word literally means an older man. It's an elder, an older, more advanced in age man. However, in the New Testament, that Greek word, that we translate elder, takes on a technical meaning as well. 
and it refers to an office or a leadership position within local congregations. Now, some of you will think of that word presbyteros, and you'll almost hear in it a particular denomination, Presbyterian, right? The Presbyterian denomination takes its name from this Greek word, because within the Presbyterian church, the form of government there is that the church is to be governed by elders, presbyteros. So again, it's a word that literally refers to an old man, older man, excuse me, but has a technical meaning in the New Testament, and it refers to an office or a leadership position in the church. And that's clearly what Peter is talking about here. Now, the other biblical office in the church is the office of a deacon. So in the New Testament, you have elders and you have deacons in a local congregation. Now, we know from this passage, as well as others, that elders teach and they rule the church. Teach and rule. For example, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, this combination of responsibilities. Paul there writes to young Timothy and he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. So again, elders are called by God and called by local congregations to lead or to rule in a church and to preach and teach. Or to put it differently, to rule through preaching and teaching. Even here in 1 Peter 5, we notice that the elders here exercise authority in the church. He says that they are to exercise oversight in verse 2. And he also says that others are called to be subject to them in verse 5. So Peter is here writing to the elders, and he himself is one of them. But then, and I find this almost humorous, but he then sort of one-ups the other guys, the other elders here. Because Peter is an elder, but he's a pretty unique elder, to say the least. He says, as a fellow elder, and then he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, there's different ways to understand what Peter is saying there. I take it to mean that he's trying to say, I'm exhorting you as an elder, and oh, by the way, let me remind you again, and an apostle. I literally, physically walked with Jesus. I witnessed the miracles of Jesus. I heard the teaching of Jesus firsthand, not secondhand. I saw Jesus nailed to a cross for our sins. And I saw Jesus rise from the dead and walk among us for 40 days. So maybe you elders that I'm writing to should pay attention to what I'm saying. Because it's going to be really, really helpful. It's from the Lord. So he's an elder. He's an apostle. And then lastly, he's been faithful. He writes as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, listen, I'm writing to you elders as an elder and an apostle and in somebody who will be sharing in, partaking in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's likely here referring to what he's going to say in verse 4 when he writes this. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you, speaking of faithful elders, 
will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he's going to encourage them that when they're faithful as elders, they're going to receive this unfading crown of glory. And right here at the outset in verse 1, he's saying, I'm also sharing in that. So he's an elder, he's an apostle, and he himself has been faithful. And therefore, he wants to encourage or exhort these other elders. And we see now his exhortation in verse 2. What does he urge these elders to do? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So, question, what are elders supposed to do? Answer, shepherd the flock of God. Answer, pastor the flock of God. What do elders do? Again, they shepherd or they pastor the church. I mean, you might be saying, where, where did that word pastor come from? Why are you inserting that in there? I don't see that in the text. Well, the answer to that question is this, that pastor is simply the Latin word for shepherd, which we've retained in English. Okay, English obviously comes from Latin, ultimately, but uh, pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. So, Essentially, what Peter is writing here is he's saying the elders shepherd the church, and we're totally fine saying they pastor the church. That's that, what that, mean, that word means, excuse me, in Latin. This is why it's okay for pastor and elder to be used synonymously. Pastors are elders. Elders are pastors. This might be a helpful way of thinking of it. Elder is the office and pastor is the job description. Elder is the office, and pastor is the job description. To the elders among us, shepherd, that's the job, shepherd the flock of God. So again, elder is the office, pastor is the job description. Now let me just pause for a moment as an aside and sort of flesh a little bit of this out for us here at Apostles Church, just so that everybody sort of understands what we have going on here at this local church. Here at Apostles Church, we have three elders or pastors. Two are staff, that would be myself and Pastor Ryan. And the other one is a lay pastor or a lay elder, and that is Pastor Justin, who is not staff. And the three of us are the elders or the pastors that have been called by this local church to shepherd the flock of God here. Now, we are called pastors in this congregation, or among this congregation, because in the American churches, pastor is sort of used in the vernacular, right? It would be a little bit odd if I were to say, hi, I'm Elder Daniel. Hi, I'm Elder Daniel. It would sound more like I'm a Mormon missionary than a Protestant pastor, right? Kind of in the vernacular in American Protestantism, pastor is the word that people use. It's the title that people use to refer to the spiritual leaders of a church. And so here, again, we're just comfortable using that title. Pastor Daniel, Ryan, Pastor Justin. Now notice, let's get back to the text, that the job of the elders is to pastor. It's to shepherd the flock of God. And then he writes, among you, among you. And this is a helpful reminder that pastors 
are not called to pastor the church globally. Pastors are not even called to pastor all believers within a community. Pastors are called to pastor and shepherd the flock of God among them. There is a very local scope to this. And here at Apostles, our job as elders or pastors in this church is, again, not to try to go pastoring people all over the world or all all over social media. Our job is to be locally focused, to love and pray for and serve and shepherd the flock of God among us. And as new men are called to be pastors or elders in this church, we are looking for people whose heart is tethered to this flock here. They want to shepherd you, the people among us, and care for you spiritually. The next thing he writes is that they are exercising oversight. This is more specifics of the job description. A shepherd provides oversight for the flock. Let me put it to you this way. A shepherd gathers, nurtures, feeds, protects, corrects, now I ran out of fingers, and cares for the sheep. Okay? A shepherd gathers, nurtures, feeds, protects, corrects, and cares for the sheep. That's what they're called to do. But Peter's going to pivot here, and next he wants to address not what pastors do. He already said that. Pastors shepherd. But what he's really going to emphasize in his text here is how pastors do what they do. There's plenty of other passages in the New Testament that flesh out more of what pastors do, what shepherding looks like. I just gave you a summary. They gather, nurture, feed, all of that. But here, Peter is specifically focused not on what, but on how pastors do the job. How do elders do it? Notice in the text that there are three not buts. Let me explain what I mean. Three times he's going to say, not like this, but like that. Not like this, but like that. And he's going to explain how pastors are supposed to shepherd the church. Number one, how are pastors or elders supposed to shepherd? One, not under compulsion. Peter writes this, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. An elder should have a desire to shepherd or pastor the people of God. When Paul is writing to Timothy about this very same office in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he begins with desire. In verse 1, he writes this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So there needs to be aspiration here. There needs to be a desire to actually shepherd the flock of God. Nobody's arm should be twisted into doing this. You're going to elder here. You're going to do it. That's not the way it works. It should not be done from compulsion, being forced into it. If you are truly called by God, you will have a holy desire to shepherd the flock you will find that you just deeply care about the people of God. Now, notice what I didn't say. 
I didn't say you will find that you just deeply care about ministry. But that you will deeply care about the people of God. Because although it is technically true that a pastor will deeply care about ministry, oftentimes we conflate ministry with things like preaching and teaching, or counseling, or administrative oversight, or leadership development. And there are plenty of pastors or aspiring pastors who fall in love with those things and yet don't love the people part of the job. Now, now all those things are ministry, but I'm only making this distinction to say that those things are not the aim of ministry. Ministry is about people. And a pastor is called, first and foremost, to the work of shepherding people, loving people. People Again, gathering, being with, praying for, caring for people. I am not a public speaker by trade. Do I do public speaking? Yes. But I don't give TED Talks. Okay? I, I preach because I am called to shepherd, and the way that I shepherd is through teaching and instructing the people of God. So, First and foremost, for somebody to be called to pastoral ministry, there is a holy desire. There is a love deep down inside of a person's heart for the people of God. Lots of churches helpfully make a distinction. They'll say, listen, we don't create pastors. We recognize pastors. And I think that's helpful. What churches are saying when they talk that way is that, If there's a person who's called to be a pastor or an elder in a church, they're already going to be drawn to doing pastoral things in the church. They're just going to, again, find that they love the people of God. They want to gather with the people of God. They're praying for the people of God. They want to go meet needs among the people of God. They want to use the word of God to instruct the people of God. And all churches have to sit back and do is go, seems like this guy's a pastor. Maybe we should make this thing official. Maybe we should formally recognize this individual as a pastor. And as the senior pastor of this church, I so earnestly desire that God would continue to fan the flame, the desire, this holy or noble desire among many men in this congregation to pastor the flock of God among us. Number two, how do pastors do it? So it's not, not from compulsion. Number two, it is not from corruption. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now this, this idea here, it gets to the motives as well as the methods in pastoral ministry. The motives, because there are people and there were people in the ancient world who looked to leadership positions in the church as a way in which they could grow in notoriety and certainly in a way in which that they could uh, become wealthy. They could could, uh, become, yeah, earn a lot of money or have access to a lot of money. It's a more general idea. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, 
an orator, somebody who publicly spoke and was really, really good at it, actually was able to gain a lot of notoriety and accrue a lot of wealth. And so there was a temptation then, just as there is today, for a person with ungodly motives to say, hmm, I have charisma. I'm good with people. Maybe I should be a pastor, gather people, and I could, I could leverage that for authority or notoriety or wealth, etc. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, same author, he writes this warning against false teachers. He says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So one of the hallmarks of a false teacher in the New Testament is that one of their underlying motives is greed. They're leveraging the ministry for personal gain. I said this gets to motives, and it does, but it also gets to methods, because as a pastor, and particularly as a pastor in the ancient world, pastors had access, probably a lot of access, to the funds of a local church. By God's grace, in healthy churches today, we have a lot of safeguards and checks and balances in place when it comes to money. But in the ancient world, where there weren't sophisticated financial systems, it was just like, hey, give the money to the people we trust. The pastor's probably held on to and distributed a lot of the resources within the church, or at least they could have access if they so desired. Now, shameful gain could also be translated dishonest gain. So the idea here, the, the thing that's being condemned is accruing wealth in sinful ways. Well, how could a pastor do that? Lots of ways. Embezzlement would be a big obvious one, but how less obvious ones? Using expense accounts for personal expenses. Or here's another thing that you see sometimes, leveraging ministry opportunities or positions in the church for business or economic opportunities for the pastor. Those sorts of trade things can happen in churches. I could go on, but the point is very clear. That, that Peter is offering a warning because whenever people are in positions of authority or leadership, there's a lot of temptations that become available there. And so Peter is saying, listen, shepherd the flock of God among you, but do not let this be about money. Do not let this be a, a way that you're trying to leverage that or use that for your own personal gain. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that a pastor cannot or should not be well compensated. We have to balance the whole New Testament's teaching. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages." So it's not to say that pastors shouldn't be well compensated or that they can't be. But it is to say that when people are being considered for pastoral ministry, one of the most important things is that they are not greedy, but that they are generous people. This is why Paul, in his list for qualifications for pastors, 1 Timothy 3.3 3 says he cannot be a lover of money. 
And again in Titus 1.7, an elder must not be greedy for gain. Number three, how do pastors shepherd? Not through coercion. So it's not out of compulsion. It's not from corruption. And it is not through coercion. Look at what he writes. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. What does it mean to be domineering? Well, the thesaurus tells me it's this. Authoritarian, bossy, overbearing, tyrannical, dictatorial, coercive. That's what it looks like to be a domineering type of leadership. Pastoral leadership ought never be toxic leadership or abusive leadership. A church is not fundamentally a business, and its pastors are not its executives. And a senior pastor is not a CEO. Pastors are shepherds, period. Not domineering, he writes. Not being authoritarian, not being abusive and harsh and abrasive and manipulative in your leading. Pastors do not manipulate or intimidate people or else they are in sin, period. So they don't do that. What do they do? He says, but setting an example for the flock. An example of what? Well, the better question would be an example of whom? And verse 4 tells us, look at verse 4. Peter writes, and when the chief shepherd appears, when the chief pastor appears, what are the implications of this? What this means is that pastors in local churches, yes, they're shepherds, Yes, they're pastors, but they are under shepherds. They are under pastors to the chief pastor, the chief shepherd, and his name is Jesus. And I love this because this relativizes the authority of pastors. And it relativizes even the submission to a church or of a church to its pastors. Ultimately, the real shepherd that we are all underneath and submitted to is King Jesus. And so if pastors in a church were to ask you to do something that is sinful or wrong, you are called to say, guess what? Not on my real pastor's watch. I'm not doing that here. And I'm not doing that for you. Because Jesus is the chief shepherd. So I love this because it relativizes the authority of pastors. The chief shepherd is the pastor and pastors are under shepherds of his. And therefore, pastors are called to just set an example of the real pastor of the church. Now, yes, it's true that every single Christian is called to set an example of Christ likeness. But pastors are called to set an example specifically of the way that the chief shepherd shepherds his people. So in our shepherding as pastors, the church is supposed to see something of, hopefully lots of what we see 
in the way that Jesus himself shepherds the church. How does Jesus shepherd us? Well, there's so much to be said here, but I'm just going to give us three quick bullet points to think about. How does Jesus shepherd us? How about this? Through sacrificial leadership that seeks the well-being of others. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, John 10.10. So as pastors, one of the hallmarks should be sacrificial leadership that is other-centric. You're actually working for the good of others. Number two, what's the shepherding of Jesus like? Well, we know it's gentle and it's lowly. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Talk about the polar opposite of being domineering. Jesus was not harsh. He was not domineering. He was gentle and he was lowly. And guess what? His sheep loved to be around him. They were not afraid of him. They loved him. They trusted him. He was kind and he was gentle. How about this idea? Number three, Jesus shepherds in grace and in truth. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus never, ever, ever waffled on the truth. He was full of it. He was a perfect embodiment of truth. That's why he could say, I am the truth in John 14, 6. But he was also full of grace. He perfectly embodied grace. It's a beautiful combination, grace and truth, gentle and lowly, sacrificial and others-centric. This is the way that Jesus shepherds. Now, verse 4, moving through the text, gives ample motivation for pastors to serve. Because as a pastor, preaching everything I'm preaching to you, you shudder in your spine and you say, who in their right mind would sign up for such a thing? This is challenging. And so Peter knows that. And so in verse four, he offers motivation and encouragement to the shepherds. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, pastors don't need to be motivated or driven corrupt motives for gain in the here and now. Because according to the Bible, for those who faithfully serve the flock of God in the here and now, there is a crown, there is a reward waiting when Jesus returns. That should be enough motivation for any pastor and any leader in the church. Now, although pastors are not to be authoritarian, they nevertheless do have an authority. Verse 5 tells us as much. Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, the word younger, the Greek word there, means to be young or it can mean to be new. Probably in the context here, as Peter is talking about the relationship between 
elders or pastors in the church and the church itself, he's probably referring to those who are younger in the faith. Presumably, those who are called to be pastors or or shepherds in the church are people who are seasoned and mature. They've been walking with Jesus for a long time in their life. And so the command here then is directed to those, again, who are presumably or at least generally newer in the faith or younger in the faith. So essentially, Peter here is saying that the congregation, the non-elders, need to be subject to the elders. We see this throughout the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the elders of the pastor or the pastors in a church should be people who are honored. They should be people who are trusted. They are people who should be submitted to in the context of the church. Now, lastly, and this is the part of the sermon that I'm most excited about. Lastly, Peter writes, everyone, pastor and parishioner, Everyone must be clothed, he writes, with humility. Do you see that there in verse 5? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice he did not say, adorn yourselves, all of you, with humility. As if humility was jewelry we put on, or a hat. He says, clothe yourselves. Humility is like the cloak that we have to have our entire Christian life wrapped up in. If we ever hope to be a people who experience God's grace and God's power among us. But I love this. Because that idea that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble is an invitation to us. As a church family, pastors and parishioners, it's an invitation to say, do we want the grace of God among us? Do we want God's power to show up in discernible and obvious ways in our midst? If our answer to the question is yes, Peter says, I've got a path to that. I've got a pathway to experiencing the grace of God among you. And it's the path, not upward, but downward. It's a lowly, humble path. And if all of you in a local church would take that road that you would choose humility, if you would let yourselves be clothed in humility, Peter is essentially saying God's grace and his presence and his power would be unleashed among you. And you'd be shocked. And you would sit back and you'd say, we're pinching ourselves by the things that we're seeing God do among us. What kinds of things might we be referring to here? How about this? Some of the non-Christians that you love so much, they're your family members, they're your neighbors, they're your colleagues that you go to work with every day. Some of them coming to faith because they're seeing a compelling, gentle, humble, loving community of people. And they're saying, maybe there's something real going on here. And all of a sudden, they're coming to faith, and we're witnessing people getting baptized behind us here on this stage. And the Lord is adding to our number daily those who are being saved. That's part of what it would look like for God's grace to be among us. Or how about this? Growth in the fruit of the Spirit. 
people's personalities historically being marked by anger and hostility all of a sudden becoming peaceable and gentle. Areas of your life, maybe struggles that you've had, sins that you've been dealing with, and the Spirit of God is giving you the power to crucify those desires and begin to live in righteousness. And we're seeing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control become not the abnormality in the church, but the norm among all of us. And we see these things embodied in each and every one of us. What about spiritual gifts being identified and being leveraged and used for the good of the church? What about love and unity being in our midst? So when people walk in here, they go, oh my gosh, I don't know much about these people, but I can tell you this, they're like a big family. Kind of a weird family, but they're like a big family. I can tell you this, these people love each other. And these people are like all in together. Whatever this thing is, they're all in it together. And they love each other and they're unified together and they are filled with joy. Where is that coming from? What a blessed church it is that finds men like we've talked about today. Elders that we've talked about today. And what blessed pastors pastor over churches, like the kind of church I'm talking about right now. It's beautiful, it's mutually uplifting, and it is so God-honoring. Well, it's true that I wanted to preach this sermon today, because at the end of this month, we are going to be voting on Joe Rupnow and calling him to the office of elder. But it's equally true that I wanted to preach this sermon today. We could reflect on what a faithful pastor looks like, and then more easily give thanks to God for a man who has faithfully discharged this office for the last two years. And I'm talking about Justin Cook. Today, we want to publicly, as a church, honor our dear brother, Justin Cook. I should have said, hold your applause, because we're going to do this again in just a moment here. I'm going to make it more awkward for him. He had no idea I was going to do this. But we're going to actually have Justin and his wife, Lisa, and their beautiful girls come up to the stage. Now, some of you know this already, but as I I said this in the sermon, Justin is a lay pastor in our church. So this is not his full-time job. Justin is actually an officer in the Air Force. And... The Cook family moved to Santa Barbara uh, in 2018 because the Air Force sent him to UCSB to pursue a PhD. The way you pay the Air Force back when they send you to do work like that is you owe them five years of teaching at the Air Force Academy. So the Cook family is leaving to go back to Colorado and get this two Sundays on Easter Sunday. And so we wanted to get out ahead of that, make sure that the whole church is aware of that, So that way, everybody here who knows the cooks and loves the cooks doesn't get blindsided on Easter Sunday when the U-Haul is pulling out of our our church because they're leaving right after church on Sunday. Wait, they're leaving. We wanted to get out ahead of this and let you all know what God is doing, that God is sending them back to Colorado. But again, we wanted to publicly honor you, Justin, and you, Lisa, today for your faithful service among us.
You're going to have to move closer to me, though. I don't like the space between us right now. Um, I want to share a couple things. And real quick, I also want to say is I promise that there is no dress code required to be a pastor in this church. It's not tan and blue because Ryan's wearing tan and blue today as well. That was totally unintentional. But Justin, I want to say that, I want to say thank you, first of all, because you have been a dear friend to me and Ryan, and I know so many others in our church, and your friendship has meant a ton, and I consider you a dear friend. But I also want to say that the two years or two plus years that Justin has been pastoring in this church have arguably been the two most challenging years to be a pastor in America in a generation. I've talked to many of my colleagues that are 30 years further down the line than me, and they said, I've never faced a year like 2020 and 2021. So it was unbelievably challenging, and yet Justin was called by God for such a time as this, and he has led our church with biblical conviction and with the very things that I just talked about here today. You've served willingly and not under compulsion. You've served us eagerly, and you've been generous with your money and never greedy for it. You've served gently avoiding even a hint of a domineering spirit. And in that way, you've lived among us as an excellent example of the chief shepherd. And that's why we are confident as a church that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And Lisa and Rebecca and Evie, we want to say thank you so much to you guys. You've let us have your dad and your husband, Lisa, to serve and minister to so many in this congregation over the last two years. You've made tremendous sacrifices. And Lisa, your joyful participation in the work of the ministry, as well as the joy that I see every time you see your husband exercising his gifts, is a confirmation to all of us that we were definitely following the Holy Spirit's leading when Justin was called to be a pastor among us two years ago. So on behalf of the church, I want to say that we all love you. We honor you. We treasure you. And we pray to God that he brings you back to Santa Barbara when you're done with the Air Force. <laughs> so I want to have um, the pastors and the deacons of the church come up. And we're just going to pray for them, thanking God for the Cook family. And um, also just asking for God's blessing on this transition into the future for them. So Choi's got to make her way up here. Unfortunately, Ty is not here. Ty French is also a deacon at our church. Choi is a deaconess. Jonas is a deacon. And yes, the matching crew up here are pastors in this church, awkwardly enough. <laughs> Family, would you please pray with us? Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you love us with an unconditional love. You love us that way because of what Christ, your own son and our chief shepherd has done for us. So God, today we rejoice in the good news of the gospel, that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, those of us who have put our faith in him have our sins forgiven, and we have been made right with you, God. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd and that you have laid down your life for your sheep. And Jesus, as the chief shepherd, we recognize that every local church calls pastors or elders to be under shepherds of yours. And that as such, they're called to be examples to the flock as they shepherd the flock of God. And so Lord, today we are so grateful for Justin Cook. 
We're so grateful for this man that you have raised up. He's a man of godly character, biblical conviction, and gentle and sacrificial leadership. Lord, thank you for the wisdom that he has provided to this church. Thank you for the many ways that he has loved and served our church so faithfully. Thank you that him and Lisa embody one of the qualifications of an elder, which is hospitality. That they have opened up their hearts and their homes to this church family. Lord, and that they've led with generosity as they've considered others more significant than themselves. God, we love this family. We will tremendously miss this family, but Lord, they belong to you, not to us. So we pray that as they reconnect with a church in Colorado, that they would serve faithfully there, that they would be an even greater blessing to that church family than they've been to us, as hard as that is to imagine. So Lord, bless them, keep them. We pray for Evie and Rebecca. Thank you for these wonderful young girls, Lord, who I know love and honor their mom and dad. And I pray, Lord, that these girls would grow to love Jesus in deepening and deepening ways all the days of their lives. So Lord, thank you for the Cook family. We commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Love you guys. God bless you. So we're going to transition into um, worship through song, but this is a great time also for me to mention that next Sunday, um, Rob and Kathy Coyman have opened up their home and we're going to have a huge church meal together in honor of the Cook family. And it's going to be a way to celebrate them with them. So that's going to happen after church next Sunday. We'll let you know their address, but the church is going to provide food for everybody. You don't have to worry about bringing anything and uh, we're just going to feast and celebrate together. So that's to look forward to next Sunday. But uh, church, I love you. I'm so thankful to be here. So thankful to be able to pastor an amazing congregation. And I do feel honestly just humbled every single Sunday that God lets me do this. So thank you guys. I love you guys. And let's worship the Lord together.